Hey, welcome to the Culture Kings Podcast, the podcast that I don't host. But it is hosted by my good friends Edgar Montplazier and Jockey Snail. Very good guys. These guys are just going to talk about pop culture, sports, you know, a lot of shit. Shit people care about. I don't know how to put it. It's like... Podcast, but like a mosh pit. And if you ask him to stop, he'll start shit. I'm talking sports to politics to back and forth. They plead the fifth, and now I'm coming back from one. Ring, ring, really big ring. Basquiat with the crowny thing. With the comedians with the clowny thing. So you better bow down as the coach kings. Um, wait, where are you at right now? So I'm in Detroit right now. Oh, you are? Are you lo- are you located yeah. there? Is that like where you live? Or I, I live, I actually live in Hamtramck. Hmm. I, yeah, but I'm I'm house sitting uh, for a friend, so I'm I'm at her house in Hamtramck, yeah, or in Detroit. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Well, I, I'm not gonna let I'm not gonna let us get too too far. You, since you're in the Midwest, without asking you how warm you are right now, uh, <laughs> because as of this recording, uh, like yeah. I'm from Chicago, and Chicago's wind chill right now is negative fifty five. So I can only imagine Detroit is the same. Uh, are you okay? <laughs> um, I, you know, you know, I I'm alive, and uh, all all the blood is flowing in my body right now. Good, so dude. Somehow, somehow, I'm living and breathing at this point. Don't go and, outside. Uh, so, no, I have I have no plans of going outside. That's crazy yeah. to me. Is that uh, new? Like, is this cold stuff? Because when I lived in New York, I don't remember it ever being like this. Yeah, I mean, you know, New York's like I would say like five to seven degrees warmer than Detroit, mm-hmm. um, and then Chicago is like five to 10 degrees colder than Detroit. Wow. Um, and by the way, none of this really matters because it's like splitting hairs because it's like cold, cold as cold. hell in all three places. Yeah. You know? So Yeah, it's um, currently but, it's currently 110 degrees warmer in Los Angeles than it is in Chicago. Oh right now. <laughs> so it all sucks, dude. <laughs> yeah. That's wild, yeah. man. That's wild. Uh, are you used to the cold? Like, do you like the cold or... You know, I don't, I'm, I mean, I wouldn't say that I like the cold, um, you know, but we are acquainted. Um, I have, I've lived in Michigan for uh, most of my life. And so um, I've just kind of gotten used to it. And, you know, to be honest, it doesn't really bother me that much. Um, I think, um, you know, for a lot of people, it, it has a profound impact on their like sense of like happiness. And, you know, it just doesn't affect me in the same way. Of course, I prefer uh 70 degree weather yeah um but but you know uh i i love detroit and uh i'm here and there's a lot of awesome stuff going on and so um you know a lot of the culture and a lot of the projects that i'm involved in um that overcompensates for the terrible weather that we have that's fair so you're saying you you don't have seasonal depression but you may just have any depression you have is just going to be regular depression nothing to do with the seasons (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oh, there, oh, there's, there's, oh, there's plenty of depression to go around. Right. Oh, of course, <laughs> of course, yeah, of course. Yeah. There's uh, plenty so... of depression on this end over here. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. You know, but but it has very little to do with the uh, uh, very little to do with the uh, weather. So yeah. So you said you're from Michigan, and there's a question that I ask everyone that tells me that they're from Michigan, but it's hard for me to ask you because you're not in front of me. So I want you to describe where on the hand are you from. <laughs> So uh, if you if you take the hand, okay. if you take the mitten, mm-hmm. um, you know if you look at the thumb, okay. so in the uh, in the eastern southeastern corner, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Detroit is kind of at the bottom of the of the thumb. Okay. So if you're holding up your left hand, 
if you just follow your thumb down, it's 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 uh, pretty close to the where the bone is mm. on your uh, on your thumb joint. The yeah, thumb so joint. We are okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. Exactly, so you're yeah. from Detroit. And, and, and also one of the things I'm gonna uh, one of these uh, it's it's one of the most interesting quirks of geography. Mm-hmm. But uh, Detroit is the only place in the United States where Canada is actually south of the United States. Whoa! I did not know that. Wait a minute. Yeah. What? Yeah, so if you if you zoom in, if Hold you on. zoom in on Google Maps, you about to have me looking at maps. Yeah, we both pulled I mean? out our phones right now to immediately so, be like, so "What is this dude talking?" The Detroit River about? flows actually flows uh, east to west. Okay. So because you know, and and yeah, and so like Windsor, the city that's across the border, is actually underneath Detroit. It's south of Detroit. Oh so when you're shit! Crossing the you're bridge right. or the tunnel. Yeah, you're actually traveling south. Holy fuck! So it's the only place in the U.S. where that where that happens. So you see that? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. That's yeah, crazy. That is insane. That is insane. Man. Yeah. So when you when you say I'm driving south, you're not driving south to Mexico. You're driving south to Canada. <laughs> Whoa. That's yeah. insane, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Isn't that weird? That is so weird. I would have never. You, if you put a gun in my head, I would have been like, I, shoot me. Because <laughs> yeah. you would have never guessed that. That's dope. Do you get uh, to? I, I never got to Canada and I'm mad about it. Yeah. Because uh, I lived oh, in Chicago man. for 26 years, and I never oh, got there. You, you have been missing out. Canada is an amazing country. Yeah, they're, they're amazing people, beautiful country. Um, Toronto is one of my favorite cities in the world, super mm-hmm. diverse. A um, lot, of, lot, of, lot of Indians, a lot of um, Asians, a um, lot of, you know, it's just, it's just it's super diverse. You know, it's probably one of the few cities where I've been to where it, it actually feels like neighborhoods are enmeshed. You know, like people are still living together. You don't have like ethnic enclaves, you mm-hmm. know, so like you do in most cities. Um, but I think one of you guys had asked me a second ago where I was from. And it's it's kind of a complicated question because I was born in India okay. and my family migrated to Detroit when I was a little kid. And so we lived in Detroit um, for many years. And as most immigrant families do, seeking uh, economic uh upward mobility we moved out to the suburbs um for us it happened to be a very working class suburb um south of detroit so that's where i went to high school and in middle school and then i moved back to detroit about seven years ago and uh so so i'm i'm an immigrant uh i was born in india and moved here with my family when i was uh when i was a little boy Okay, now I have a couple of questions. Uh, my first question is, I, I went to high school on the border of Mexico, so we would drive south mm-hmm. to go drinking and stuff like that and, like, you know, get cheap bootleg movies. Did you guys ever drive yeah. south to Canada to get to get wild and get drunk? I know, because the drinking age is 18 there, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I believe, so I think the drinking age in Canada is 18. Yeah. Um, and lots of people that I knew in high school would, would go there and drink. Um I'm being Muslim, um, you know, not drinking is, you know, I, I did, I, I never drank. So oh, wow. um, that wasn't like something that was a part of my life and, and, uh, it isn't, it, it still isn't. So, gotcha, um, gotcha. so I never experienced that, but lots of people do because yeah, the drinking age was 18 or 19 in Canada. So mm-hmm. is it, yeah. was it when you were long? Cause I feel like with, especially in high school, because I, I grew up in a religious family. I think most of us, Edgar did too. Very religious. So, yeah. like, our religion, our religious identities uh, shape us a lot. And then you get to high school, and then you're seeing everybody from different backgrounds and shit like that. 
and they're breaking shit that they grew up with. So you feel that peer pressure to say, oh, yeah, I'll drink, too. You know what I'm saying? Uh, did yeah. that ever did that? Did that type of peer pressure ever come to you in high school or were you pretty steadfast? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a very religious household. Mm. Um, you know, my parents uh, to this day, you know, I would say they, they're, they're much more laid back now. Um, but yeah, I mean, when we when we grew up, they were very, very religious. Um, and that kind of evolved for them, too, because when I think a lot of immigrant families, um, when, you know, at least I'm speaking from my own experience, uh, like my family wasn't particularly that practicing. Um, religion was a part of their life back home. But when you come to America, you're surrounded by all of these new influences mm. and impulses and motivations. Mm. And so you want to try to preserve everything that you can. And so one of the things that they really wanted to preserve was um, was our religious identity. And Islam is also the most diverse religion in America. Yeah. Right. And so it becomes an easy thing to sort of connect with people on in your community and so, you know, growing up, I always had, we, we grew up predominantly in a South Asian Pakistani community, um, but uh, I knew people were Muslim from like all over the world. And I, from a very young age, I met people from all different backgrounds, um, Asian, uh, Eastern European, uh, obviously a lot of African Americans as well. Um, and, uh, you know, and, you know, Michigan has a huge uh, Muslim population, which is very diverse. So I knew all kinds of people. And uh, so I think, you know, when a lot of immigrants come to the United States, they start to hold on and try to preserve aspects of their identity. And for my family, I think religion was a big part of it. And then they found uh, communities where that could be served. And so growing up then, kind of like getting older, going to high school, you definitely feel a ton of peer pressure, mm -hmm. um, especially because Islam is a religion um, that requires a lot from its uh, followers. And so, you know, praying five times a day, fasting during the month of Ramadan, um, giving charity, like all those things were, you know, a part of our lives. And however, as an immigrant, your home life and your, uh, and your life outside the home sometimes can be two very different things. Yeah. And it creates uh, an immense uh, amount of complexity um, in your life. And, and I was not an exception to that, Yeah, you know? And so um, I think, you know, you're battling all kinds of things. You're trying to figure out who you are as a person. You're trying to fit in. Um, and I remember, you know, towards the end of high school, I just like, uh, you know, I, I just really kind of wanted to be more of a watered down version of myself. And I just wanted to fit in with everybody else, you know, um, and uh, I remember when I went to college, it was the same thing. Like, you know, we had a Muslim Students Association at my college, and I really didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, you know, I would go to some religious services once in a while, um, things that, you know, I guess were important to me. But mostly I just wanted to have some separation from that, uh, from that part of my identity and that, and, and that group. However, when I was in school, 9-11 um, happened my sophomore year. Dang. And so um, that really turned my life upside down in a lot yeah. of different ways. Can you go um, in into some that a little ways, bit? Like how yeah, did that, for sure. I mean, it, there's it, obviously it, the, <clears throat> the clear, distinct way that it did. Because, uh, I mean, I'm from New York, so I know how I treated people, uh, which yeah, you know, is yeah, something yeah. I'm very apologetic about and all that. But um, yeah, uh, how did that no, like, so affect your life specifically? Absolutely. It, it had a profound effect on my life. And, and I think immediately what ended up happening was 
you know, I was getting questions from friends, uh, questions and, you know, uh, comments on Islam that I really didn't have a response to. I didn't know how to answer them because I grew up in an environment that was uh, very limited in terms of like the global Muslim experience. And yeah. so I didn't really know a lot about uh, the geopolitical realities of the Middle East, American and you're also foreign a child. policy. <laughs> like yeah. And, you're, and I mean, I'm, I'm 19, you know, oh, I'm 18, 19 college, years okay. old, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, being that young, like, you know, I haven't I hadn't really uh, matured intellectually. Mm-hmm. And so I think what ended up happening was it forced me to to grow and mature intellectually, but in a lot of ways, spiritually as well, because mm-hmm. I was discovering things about my faith that I didn't know about. And I was discovering things about, um, uh, you know, our history, meaning American history and American history in the Middle East um, and so, you know, I think that period became kind of a quest for me to understand who I am and understand my faith and then also um, help combat the uh, the growing and festering amount of Islamophobia that was really being cultivated through the media, um, through uh, public events, you know, through politics, through academia, through research, all that stuff was going on. Um, and at that time, it was kind of the nascent period of the Islamophobia industry, which is like very well funded yeah. and tied to uh, tied to uh, uh, neoconservative uh, philanthropy. And so at, at that time, I was forced to kind of turn inwards and look at some of the realities and some of the challenges within my own faith and uh, also look at, um, you know, uh, discover some of the diversity, not only diversity in like uh, in ethnicity and cultures, but diversity in thought. And right. uh, so I was better able to kind of understand the trajectory of what was going on, you know, with 9-11 and then the subsequent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, um, being very anti-war, especially against in my adult life, those those two in particular, um, you know, that, w- that became a big part of my identity. And, and I became what, you know, what, uh, many of us, uh, you know, w- would call like a college or campus activist, right? You know, and so that's kind of where my activism began. So then, and uh, um, so kind of what I'm thinking is like that really resonates with me because I want to say in college is when I started to like I. So growing up in New York, I kind of like you know went to Texas and was the only black person around. So like I guess like my blackness kind of like took a break for a second because it wasn't really being challenged. But at the same time, I was growing into a man. And that was like the first time I ever like uh, 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 was assaulted by the police and like, you know, had all these racist things start happening to me because I like, I like jumped from being a kid to a man immediately in the eyes of people because I was a young black man. So like you talking about how all of that stuff happened to you at that age and sort of made you go deeper into your own identity. I want to ask you, how did you not walk away from it with just an intense hate for the way that people were treating you and stuff like that? Like, what did you do to kind of or quelch that anger that you were probably feeling while you're reading about how America did all these disgusting things in the Middle East and like toppled governments and pushed, you know, fascist regimes and all that stuff? How did you deal with that hate that probably and anger that was growing inside of you? Well, I think one of the ways you combat hate is with knowledge. Mm. And so I, I was introduced to the writings of people like Edward Said, Noam Chomsky. Um, and, you know, they, that was kind of like the foundation of my intellectual development. Mm-hmm. And over the time, I started finding more, um, more scholars, more writers 
that I started considering intellectual mentors and heroes. Um, and I mean, the short answer is through knowledge. Yeah. And I realized that a lot of what we were, we were being told in the media and by uh, President Bush and and other politicians that were so pro-war um, was bullshit. Yeah. You know, and so the, and there was there was a huge anti-war movement at that mm-hmm. time. And I think people forget. But, uh, you know, his uh, approval ratings were plummeting, yeah. you know, um, over the subsequent years into his second term. And um, so I, I think that was like the main thing It's like I realized that this there's something that just doesn't feel right about this. Like people don't just hate other people. They don't just get up and like and just bomb things, you know, or fly airplanes into buildings. Um, none of that is, of course, justified. And like the immense loss of life is the, one of the most tragic ex- things that I've experienced or viewed um, yeah. or witnessed in my life, you know. But this um, is but a reaction to like, something, is what you're saying. It's like, a reaction to something. Yeah. You know, it's a reaction to something. And, and you know, and whenever we have something like this, I think, you know, and subsequently after 9-11, when there were terrorist attacks, whether they be in Europe or in the Middle East, um, you have to put them into context, you know. And I think anyone that says, oh, those people are just crazy, those people are just violent, um, you know, that's just coming from a place of ignorance and a lack of knowledge. And they don't know what they're talking about. And it's, it's like anything, you know, like, you know, you, if you just take one part of, um, you know, uh, one part of something that happens or take, takes place, uh, you know, you're missing the big picture, you know, of like what led up to that act, what led up to that uh, phenomenon, you know, to take place. Right. And I think 9-11 is a good example of that. You know, it's just like a series of foreign policy you know, blunders and decisions that ended up leading to that point. And, uh, and I think, you know, we're kind of continuing down that path with some of the decision making that's happening today in our government. And I think it's just, it's part of American imperialism. You know, it's, it's something that um, has been going on since World War Two, you know, probably even before that. And, uh, you know, and so we see the byproduct of our foreign policy, coming back to us in a lot of different ways, you know? And so I think that was one of them, Yeah, you know? And so, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't walk away. I couldn't walk away from my community. I couldn't walk away from my faith. I, I mean, I felt like there was a real sense of, uh, civic and social responsibility. And I, you know, also I felt like it's not what our true values are, um, in America, you know, if we are a place of tolerance and religious freedom, um, you know, then then why are we treating members of our society uh, this way, you know? Right. And uh, I think the rhetoric now against Muslims is way worse. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. Yeah, it has gotten better. And, and, and hate crimes against Muslims have skyrocketed, and they're, uh, they've skyrocketed at a rate that's way worse than the Gulf War, which was a big peak back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and uh, then after 9-11... Uh, this period right now under uh, under Trump, uh, and we have statistics um, to showcase it, to show it that, yeah, I mean, things are really bad right now. They're probably as worse as they've ever been. Um, definitely in my lifetime, this is the worst that I've ever seen it. I agree with that, man. Uh, I feel like we're getting to know you very well, but our audience probably wants to know who you are. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, We've yeah. done such a yeah, bad yeah. job of hosting yes. you. Yeah, uh, I apologize. <laughs> uh, y'all already know this is Culture Kings. Jack, he's here. Edgar here. 
Who we got, Edgar? Who we got today? Uh, look, and I want to apologize, Rosie, if I completely fuck up your name. Please come after me because I always have people fuck up my name. So if I fuck up your name, you should say you're a fucking hypocrite and you should die, Edgar. <laughs> say, uh, those, say those exact words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Rosie Joffrey? Yes. You got it. Hey. There you go. Hey. There you go. There you go. Uh, you are a filmmaker, right? Is that correct? Um, yeah. And, you, mm-hmm. of course, you said Absolutely. an activist. So I kind of want to understand a little bit of a timeline of something. So you're in college. You know, everybody's out partying, drinking, being wild, but you're studying, like, your background and all this. When did that turn into go from being an activist into, like, oh, I want to use film as my medium for activism? Okay, so a very good question. Um, so while I was a, a student activist on campus, I actually studied engineering. Whoa. And, and, and so uh, I became an engineer and I worked for, as an engineer for 10 years before wow. I decided to leave. And what happened was, you know, growing up in a working class family that really valued education, um, I had to make a choice that, uh, that I knew was going to um, be an economically viable choice in terms of my profession. Yeah. And so I originally growing up, I always wanted to be an, an, an architect. And, and truthfully, I didn't have a lot of pressure from my parents. Um, I think, you know, because uh, my dad, like, you know, he was pretty supportive of us, like just becoming professionals, like, you know, like choose something where you're going to have like a stable income, yeah. you know, and, and therefore like a, a solid life, you know. And so I, I, however, when I was a senior in high school, I got really scared. Um, and I thought like, because architecture is so clientele based and um, because the economy, the way that it kind of was at the time and kind of, you know, how it kept changing throughout my college years, I decided to study engineering. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. You didn't want to do architecture because you were afraid of like, you know, how irregular the income was. But then he became yeah, a yeah. filmmaker, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to hear the whole story, man. Okay, okay, story. my fault, my so, fault. So, so you know, so and and that decision to become an engineer, it paid off. Yeah, you know, at least in this superficial way. So I, I, you know, I found work. I found work in college. Um, actually, I um, got internships and co-ops that you know that paid me well, and then it allowed me to support myself, pay my tuition, all that stuff. And then I graduated and I got a job and then came, you know, uh, success in my career through promotions and, you know, raises and things like that. Um, You know, so in that way, that decision like paid off, you know, and I, I, however, um, I was not fulfilled. Um, It was extremely painful going to work. I mean, physically it hurt, you know. And so all of the things that I had been involved in in college both artistically creatively socially those things were still part of my life but i was not effective you know because i wasn't fully committed and so um what would happen is that it would just fuel the frustration and it would fuel this like latent depression that was kind of like deep down inside me and uh at the same time i was in a relationship i was married actually Mm -hmm. and unfortunately in 2015 um, I went through a divorce. Oh, damn. I'm sorry and about that. Oh, when I went through a divorce, yeah, thank you. Um, it was, you know, it was amicable, but it's still, it was still a really painful thing to go through. Mm-hmm. As anyone that's had that experience knows. Um, and uh, so I decided, you know, it was so painful that like, I was like, man, this is, if this is the worst thing I'm going to go through, then like I can handle anything. 
And it was so hard going to work during that period. I remember like just going to work and being a zombie, you know, I would just go to work and like, I would just, um, I would just like read Buzzfeed articles and like, read that's, the Atlantic that's why you knew you were depressed. Like, you were reading Buzzfeed. Yeah, articles. exactly. You were reading the whole article. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you were just, yeah, you exactly. weren't just reading the titles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and also my mind, I've always had like a wild imagination. And so mm-hmm. my mind would like wander, um, you know, and so, you know, I would always think about the things that I would have wanted to have done with my life. And that was, of course, fueling my depression even more, you know. And then when things were kind of finalized or close to being finalized with my ex-wife, um, you know, and like I said, I mean, it was it was amicable, but man, it was really painful. And I, I had this realization, I was just like, well, you know, I, I don't have someone in my life that, you know, I have to like immediately take care of right now. My parents were, um, you know, they were fine. Uh, you know, I didn't really have any major responsibilities. So I thought, you know what, like, I can't do this anymore. I can't go to work anymore. It's not fair for me. It's not fair for them. So I'm just going to walk away from this, you know, and I left a very stable, lucrative um, job um, to, uh, to pursue other things. Um, I'm also a social entrepreneur. Um, You know, I'm also a photographer, And uh, so what ended up happening was I started taking some of those impulses and some of those creative ideas more seriously. And so I worked on a couple startup projects and, you know, throughout this period, um, I was kind of just like supporting myself through savings and like little projects here and there um, that I'd work on. And then what ended up happening was this was all in 2015 and the summer of 2016, I got into two uh, professional like fellowships and one of them was uh, this photojournalism and documentary photography fellowship called Documenting Detroit. Oh, wow. And that really gave me the confidence because I always knew that I wanted to tell stories. Um, I always had ideas for different, like, documentary projects, and I always thought journalism would have been such a cool career for me, you know, Um, because I like to write and I like to think um, and I like to read. And so... um, and so, you know, I started taking all that stuff more seriously and I, and I took that fellowship very seriously and uh, knocked out uh, a project, uh, you know, through that fellowship. And then this is in 2016. So keep in mind what's going on, right? It's the presidential election that's taking place. Yeah. You know? Oh, man, I thought you were going to say it was the Cubs winning the World Series. No, he don't care about that. Exactly. <laughs> he don't care about that. He's talking yeah. about the real issues. Oh, okay, okay. All yeah. Right. So we're, we're leading up to October. We're leading up to November. You know, it's coming up to election day. And so um, I, you know, I was actually helping a friend of mine, uh, uh work on a documentary he was coming to Detroit to work on a documentary and you know we started talking about ideas uh, about doing a film together his name is Justin and so uh, Justin and I met through a mutual friend um, because he was looking for people in the Muslim community or Arab community to interview for his documentary film which was about marginalized uh, voices and the uh, voices and perspectives in the uh, 2016 election And so, you know, we became good friends and we started talking about ideas for a film and we threw some ideas back and forth. Um, And this is, again, this is fall of 2016 leading up to the elections. And I remember, I think Justin and I were both at the Arab American National Museum um, in Dearborn, Michigan. And uh, we were just like talking about different ideas and he's filming, you know, uh, I'm like just hanging out with people and, and the sort of collective sense in the room just like, you know, every 30, 40 minutes is just starting to like deflate, 
like more and more and more, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Justin and I are there, we're like talking about different ideas and we're kind of checking in on the you know, electoral college votes and kind of what's going on. And we just kind of like, I, I don't know if it was that day or maybe like within a day or two of that of election day, but we started talking about um, ideas of working on a project together. And we thought, you know, Hamtramck would make such a great um, subject uh, for a film. And, you know, we were just like, you know, I wonder if there's some type of festival or event or some type of issue that's going on right now that we could anchor a story in. And we thought, oh, you know, I wonder if there's an election. I think that night we just like looked it up on our phones. And this is fall of 2016. There was an election in 2017 that was happening in in Amdramic. So we're like, bam, there's our story. Oh, yeah. You know, and so we started developing an idea for a film um, and uh, that's how that came about. And, and so I didn't have a lot of experience shooting video. Uh-huh. And so what ended up happening was Justin, who had all the film equipment, trusted this like, you know, film equipment that's worth like thousands of dollars with me. And he left it in uh, Michigan. He left it in Detroit at my apartment so I could start filming this documentary. And he kind of gave me a tutorial before he went back. And, uh, you know, I that kind of gave me some idea of how to like work with this equipment. And, uh, so we started filming, you know, uh, I think in January or February of that, of 2017. Mm-hmm. And then we spent the year, uh, following the elections. Um, uh, I had a couple other projects that came up. I was a, I was a consultant and a producer for a project that I worked on for national geographic magazine on Muslims in America. Nice. It was, uh, published in, uh, April of 2018. I worked with, uh, Layla Fadel and Lindsay Adario, um, and, and that ended up being an amazing uh, story, um, very nuanced, um, very intelligently written. Um, I got to travel with them, you know, a little bit as well uh, throughout the course of that project. So and then at the same time, while all of this is happening from fall of 2016 until summer of 2017, I taught in a Detroit high school. And uh, you so have a lot I on was, your plate, I my was, guy. You do. Oh, no. You, you got to slow down. man. <laughs> you got to slow down. down. We got to. We got you. You bought. Oh, yeah. You did bring up something that we definitely have to talk about. We want to talk about it because uh, I've never heard of this place before, and you made an entire documentary about it. But we're gonna get to that right after the break. We'll be back, y'all. We back, everybody. We got the main man Rozzy on the line with us. Talking to your culture kings. Uh, all right. So before we went to break, you were saying that you were teaching in the Detroit public school, or you were teaching in the Detroit school system. Uh, but right before yeah. that, you bought up Hamtramck, which I've never heard of before. Uh, but you base yeah. you made an entire documentary about yeah. about is it just about the place Hamtramck, or was it about an actual event that went that no, went down? It's, um... So Hamtramck, uh, so let me start by laying out some geography here. Um, D- Detroit is, uh, is a city that is so big, um, it actually has two cities inside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Highland Park is one of those cities, and Hamtramck is the other one. Now, it sounds like you bragging. Um, Hamtramck, like, it sounds like you're taking shots at other cities. Are you taking shots <laughs> no, at New York no, right no, now? Because I'm not upset. At all. No, no, no. No, not at he all. He like, New no, York no, only no, got I, boroughs. I, we got two cities in a city. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, by the way, Hamtramck is two square miles. It's like, it's like a fraction of a borough. Okay, you know? okay, like, okay. It would I'm be like a couple. Down. It'd be like a couple of blocks in, uh, in 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 the Bronx or Brooklyn or something. <laughs> so it's it's tiny, you know. But the interesting thing about this uh, about this lovely little town is that uh, it's America's first Muslim majority city. Can you break down what that means? Because a lot of our listeners, we just call, we just, I don't know if you know what the Daily Zeitgeist is. They're like, they're this podcast that breaks down political news and stuff like that. And we were recently yeah. called the dumbed down version of that podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you could help our very dumb listeners, uh, what do you mean sure. by uh, Muslim majority? So I think it's now, it's, a, it's about 52 or 51% of the town uh, is, is from the Muslim faith. And so what that means, you know, I want to break that down a little bit uh, demographically. So the majority of, the, of that group of people are from places like Yemen and Bangladesh. Wow. Um, however, you also have a sizable population of European Muslims that came during the Balkan Wars um, in the mid-90s to early 2000s from places like Bosnia, Albania, Kosovo. Um, you also have a, a large African-American uh, Muslim population as well. And uh, you also have um, some converts, like people who are like white, straight up like white, Polish, um, you know, uh, Muslim, that people that converted to Islam. Um, and so it's a very diverse Muslim community. Even when you say Muslim, within that, um, there's a huge, uh, there's a huge amount of diversity even within that. Because so I think a major confusion that a lot of people have is that when you say Muslim, they imagine an Arab person, but you're, yeah. you're referring to the, I mean, anyone who's saying it is usually referring to the religion, right? Yeah, exactly. But the thing that they don't, they might not realize is that, um, is that uh, the majority of Muslims um, in the world globally are not Arab. Wow. Um, they're Asian or East Asian. So the biggest Muslim countries are countries like India, India, which has a huge Muslim population, but mm-hmm. uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, which mm-hmm. are in South Asia. Then you go further east is where you have the biggest Muslim countries, Indonesia, Malaysia. There's, I think, like 25 million Muslims in China. Yeah, I have a friend um, who's Albanian more, who's Muslim. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that 25 million is more than most Arab countries, you know, most Arab countries' populations. So just to give you a perspective, like the Arab world right. um, makes up a very, very small percentage of the global Muslim population. Right. Wow. Um, but it, it is the most uh, politically, uh, sociopolitically relevant one. Uh, so therefore, it gets the most attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people ask me a question like, oh, you know, why do Muslims do this or what do Muslims believe? You know, I often come back to them like, which Muslims are you talking about? Right. Are you talking about African-Americans? Are you talking about Bosnians? Are you talking about people from Bangladesh? Are you talking about Hispanic, Latino Muslims? Uh, which ones are you talking about? Yeah. You know, because like any diverse community, we are influenced um, by our environments, our impulses, our surroundings, our family situations, our economics, our class, our race. Um, and that ends up forming our various worldviews. So now coming back to the United States, um, looking at the demographics here, the majority of Muslims in America are African-American. Yeah. And people forget that, you know, um, and that's the legacy of the Nation of Islam. Yeah. Uh, you know, Malcolm X, Elijah Muhammad, um, you know, and then Elijah Muhammad's son, uh, W.D. Muhammad, um, who was, uh, interestingly enough and coincidentally, born in Hamtramck. 
okay, so how did this happen? Uh, like, because when you talk about the state of Michigan, and you know, I I dated someone who was from Michigan, and what I saw and what I remember is that it was the whitest place on earth. So how did it be that this, you know, what we imagine to be this very white Midwestern state becomes home to what you're saying is one of the largest Muslim populations in America? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, and, and I will say that Southeast Michigan is, is very diverse. There's mm-hmm. other parts of Michigan that are not. And that's probably like what, you know, people think of when they think of Michigan. But Detroit is the blackest city in America. Yeah. It also has a huge uh, Latino population and an Arab population. So I think when you actually look at statistics, um, you know, that sort of that stereotype or that image tends to start to break down. All right. Take your um, shots, Rosie. Also... Take your shots. Take your shots. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's not personal against you, man. <laughs> um, but, but one of the things that's interesting about the, you know, so like I, you know, I just had a huge cultural shock. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I just came back from the Sundance Film Festival, which is in Utah. And so I landed in Salt Lake City and I had this reaction. I was just like, Man, this place is so white. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like the whitest place I've ever been to. Have you ever seen so that uh improv everywhere video where they have this black man go to this uh park slope in uh in Utah and he's just like meet oh, a black man, person. Meet a black person because no one there had ever seen a black person before. Oh my god. Yeah. Um I'll I'll have to I'll have to look it up because that's kind of how I felt. <laughs> I was just like, man, any person of color that I saw was just like who are you? I need to know who you are. Right. Because <laughs> Another are one. You experiencing, are you experiencing what I'm experiencing right yeah. now? Yeah. You know? um, I, I don't think, but, I think that's something that a lot of, not to, not to uh, derail what you're saying, we can go right back to it, but I think that's something that a lot of non-people of color or white people, whatever you want to see, don't realize is how often we realize we're the only ones in the room uh, or we're the only ones that you will see for an hour before you see another person of color. Uh, that know, shit is so, that feeling is so recognizable and so relevant and prevalent, I should say, uh, that feeling that I don't think a lot of people realize that. So I can imagine how it feels to go to another city, step off a plane and be like, God damn, I don't think I've ever been to a wider place than where I am right now. Yeah, I mean... Um it's, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I had never seen anything like that before. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, maybe, you know what, and like sort of reflecting on that, it's like, there are parts of this country which I have not explored and there are, you know, biases and stereotypes that I have, you know, and, um, you know, and it's just like, it kind of made me think about that a little bit because I had a lot of jokes running through my head, you know, (laughs) um, you know, (laughs) But, you know, like often sometimes when like somebody will move to Detroit, like the city itself, and they're from like like the Carolinas or the South or like places like, you know, Colorado or Utah, they'll move to Detroit and they'll be like, oh, my God, Detroit is so diverse. And the thing is, yeah, it is. um, But it's a very black city. And so the majority of people are African-Americans and they just have not encountered any type of diversity. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and so all that what ended up happening in Detroit was that there was a white flight. But then later on, there was a brown flight where Detroit did have uh, a sizable Asian population, Indian population, uh, you know, and, and populations from different parts of the world that ended up moving out to the suburbs. Mm. And when Detroit's white flight took place, lots of people left the city. And so now you have these huge um, enclaves of 
ethnic minorities in northern suburbs, western suburbs, um, south of Detroit, north of Detroit. So the periphery, the peripheral neighborhoods, and also this has to do with the automotive industry, which brought in tons of knowledge workers and laborers from not only across the United States, but from all over the world. Yeah. So we have a, we have a Japanese community here. Um, we have a Vietnamese community. We have a ton of people from the Middle East. Um, and so, you know, so it, so it, it is diverse, but, you know, it's, you have to kind of dig deep into the layers to explain it. You know, that diversity is not necessarily manifested in Detroit and the city itself, which is, you know, this area is one of the most segregated in the, in the country. Wow. Um, and it's segregated by race and segregated by class. Um, and so that's the reality that we have today. Um, but, uh, but uh, it, is, it is diverse. I mean, I, I, it's also your mindset. Like, what are you looking for? Yeah. You know, a lot of my white, white friends in Detroit will say things like, oh, Detroit's such a small town. Everybody knows each other. You know, it's because you have no black friends. <laughs> you know, you just have like <laughs> the same friends that you hang out with, you know, at your like, you know, big corporation um, or amongst your like circles. And you don't go to other parts of the city where there is, you know, where there's like, you know, Caribbean clubs or where there is like, you know, people from West Africa or people from the Middle East, you know, or just other people that you don't interact with. And so I just hear that all the time. And it's because all the new people in the city. Yeah, they all know each other. You know, and it's a lot of like white liberal artists and and young professionals that just hang out in the same circles and they don't right. get to explore um, or see other parts of the city. And so therefore they feel like it's a very small city um, and that everybody knows each other and they're not having these new experiences. Um, they just don't get out, yeah. you know. And uh, so coming back to Hamtramck, um, it's also a place that has a very complicated um it has a very complicated history for most of its uh, existence. It was, it has been a predominantly Eastern European city, uh, specifically Polish. Um, and so for, I think it's something like for the last 80 years, Hamtramck has had a mayor of Polish heritage uh, mm-hmm. or background. And uh, most I know that people, that is true because I've read the materials to your thing. Ah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so over the last, I would say about 30 years, like things have really started to shift. Um, and you've seen a lot of migration from places like Yemen and Bangladesh. But we've also taken in a lot of refugees, as I mentioned, from places like Bosnia, um, Albania, Kosovo. Um, and then more re- recently, I would say in the last like 15, 10 or 15 years, you've seen a lot of migration uh, from places like Yemen and Bangladesh, um, but also Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. Um, and so the demographics of the city have totally shifted. Right. I, and so that's kind of how that's kind of how we come to the population that we have today. Gotcha. Um, historically, a lot of people were drawn to Detroit. Now, historically, what I mean is like uh, basically up to about 100 years ago, um, people were drawn to Detroit for jobs. Um, if you remember, um, Henry Ford implemented the five dollar a day workday, which back in the 19 teens and the 1920s and 1930s was unheard of. Yeah, that's baller. You balling out with like that five dollar a day. I mean, you're yeah, you're you're middle class. Yeah. You know, that means you can buy a house. Good old you times. can you know you can save some money. Um, you can take a couple. You know, maybe take a trip or two once a year, and yeah. you can have you know you can have a very comfortable life. And so now with five dollars um, so a day, you'll be living on Hollywood Boulevard. The actual city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. so and so um, so that's what drew people here. And and uh, you know uh, you know for Henry Ford, you know he he was he was a racist, 
but he had he had a spectrum of who he hated more. And at the bottom of his totem pole were Jew, Jewish people. So, you know, they were kind of at the bottom of his list. And he had a special, he had reserved a special hatred for, uh, for Jewish people. Everybody else, I guess, was kind of tolerable. So he had employed all kinds of people in his factories, even though, um, you know, racism and prejudice was taking place. They were still employed um, at, at, the, uh, at the plants. That is such a weird uh, specific racism to be like, what are you? Uh, Muslim. That's not Jewish, right? No. <laughs> All right, you got a job. Like that's so like <laughs> yeah. that's so specific. But I guess like you're saying, like it did. It was kind of its own very early version of an inclusion writer. But uh, dang, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and so over time, when those plants started closing, then people started leaving Amtrak. Mm, yeah. Specifically, especially like the white people. You know, they started moving to other states, other other cities. You know, other areas, and so that presented an opportunity for low-income new immigrants to move into town and, uh, and uh, you know, start living in the neighborhoods and cleaning them up because at one point, Hamtramck lost a ton of its population and, you know, the immigrants moved in and they started cleaning up the neighborhoods. Wow. This kind of reminds me of season two of The Wire, uh, which is, like, about, like, you know, how with the shipping yards closing and all of that stuff, you have the working-class white Americans start to disappear is that kind of a similar story to what's happening in Hamtramck, where because the auto industry is, you know, fading away, like, you know, we're building cars in other places and we're not building the same kind of cars anymore that working class Americans, which when we say that, usually we don't mean what they usually look like. We're just talking about white people. Um, are they leaving those towns because those jobs aren't there anymore? Yeah. I mean, uh, basically, uh, you know, the jobs weren't there. And so. You know, they were leaving and they were abandoning homes, businesses, neighborhoods, um, and, uh, you know, a lot of new immigrants that come to America, you know, it's like one person moves to an area or a neighborhood and then they're able to invite um, other people. Oh, yeah. You, you call know, everybody. Um, and so you call every you call single everybody. person. Hey, there's hey, there's cheap housing here. We can start a business here. We can start a grocery store. Mm -hmm. You know, we can we can work. We can have a good life. And so that's how, you know, a lot of that's how like the masses uh, moved to these areas. And that's kind of a similar story with my own family. You know, I had an uncle that came to America and, um, and, uh, you know, eventually he, him and his wife, my aunt, they started sponsoring their siblings. You know, this is my, my mother's brother, mm -hmm. um, a late brother. He passed away in 2017. Um, but, uh, but you know, that's, that's how it was. And it's like, you're going to go to the place where your cousins, your siblings, where your relatives are, you know, because you'll have that support structure. And, and that's what I see in a lot of, uh, a lot of the people in, in the community that I live in, because I live in Hamtramck now, um, are, you know, people that, um, you know, they, they, they came first or, you know, their relative came and they started, uh, you know, sponsoring people to come to the United States. Another interesting thing that we see is that um, there's a lot of migration from within the United States to places like Hamtramck, from places like Astoria, Jackson Heights, Queens, where you have a large uh, Bengali or South Asian population um, and parts of New York where there's a large Yemeni population where people move to places like Hamtramck because of economic opportunities and also the cost of living being so much lower and being able to afford a house and buy a house. And uh, so we see some of that as well. We know some definitely know about a couple of marriages or relationships where somebody got married to someone from you know, New York, and then they their, their spouse or their partner moved to, moved to Hamtramck, you know, right. so 
we're also we all, we've also seen migration to Hamtramck from within the United States. As I've well. also met a number of Euro- Europeans that have moved to Hamtramck too. Um, you know, a couple of good friends of mine, uh, you know, moved uh, moved to uh, moved to Hamtramck from Norway, from Chile, from different places, um, Poland. You know, um, to basically start their life life there. Yeah. Gotcha. So now I got a two part question for you. Uh, you said mm-hmm. you were in at Sundance. So one, did you take this documentary to Sundance they had to play at Sundance and whether it did or not uh if somebody was sitting down and was like you know what I want to watch a documentary uh mm. what do you think is going to draw them to your documentary if you can put it in like a log line or put it in like a, a synopsis of what's yeah. going to be oh so sit down I'll and start, watch this I'll I'll start with that first mm-hmm. so the way that I describe Hamtramck is that the film is about uh, is about a city's elections, right? But it's it's more than that. It's about the um, benefits, tensions, and complexities of multiculturalism mm-hmm. through the lens of uh, this small American working class town's 2017 city elections. So you know the the elections serve as a vessel to examine um, the deeper issues in in this city, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 what Hamtramck is going through is is unique, but it's also uh, what a lot of American cities have been going through and will experience in their future. And in this yeah. climate of Islamophobia and anti-immigration rhetoric that exists in the, in the public space, um, Hamtramck presents a great case study mm-hmm. for uh, both its, 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 its um, achievements, but also its failures um, around multiculturalism. Because it might, you know? not, it might not just be Muslim, right? Like it could be like most towns in America at some point in the way that we're going will experience a majority that is not white. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you replace the Muslim with uh, Latino or, you know, Chinese or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. or it might be a mix, you know, it might be, it might be, you know, a mix of different, you know, people from different ethnic uh, and cultural backgrounds, you know? Okay. Um, so, you know, a lot of towns are going to experience this and, you know, I think there's a, there's an impression of Hamtramck that it's a, you know, it's this like place where everyone gets along and, you know, and I think for a lot of like, it's, it's a particular type of like young white liberal person um, that like gets to enjoy the benefits of a multicultural um, town. They get to tell their friends about the best kebabs in Hamtramck and that, and that gives them in a sense uh, some social cachet or social capital because because you know they're they're exposing their loved ones to and, and their friends to something new and interesting and cool you know um, but what they're not aware of are the um, are the realities of what it's like to be a person of color in a town which has a police force and a, a city administration that's major that's white that's yeah that's, that's so not representative white, you know? of what the town is. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where some of the tensions kind of come in, you know, um, and, and there is there is kind of a history of, of police profiling, voter intimidation um, that have taken place in the town. And this is redlining also. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, this is all public information. You know, one could easily, you know, find these things out, you know, um, but but those things are part of the reality of Hamtramck as well. Um, you know, it's not just, you know, it's, it's neither all good, neither it's all bad. You know, yeah. I think there's a lot of things to celebrate, um, in the town. Um, you know, but, but it's not perfect, 
you know? And so those are some of the things that we look at. Um, what, what took me to Sundance was actually a different project that I'm working on. Um, and I did, I did sort of network for, for the benefit of Hamtramck while I was there, of course, because it's a really important project to me. But mm-hmm. what actually took me to Sundance was another film that I'm working on with my good friend, uh, David. Um, and it's a film called Loyalty. And it follows the story of three Muslim chaplains in the U.S. Armed Forces. And so we had a uh, screening of a few uh, short uh, short films that built up to the feature length, which is what I'm working on. Nice. And we had a trailer for the feature length that we showed at Sundance. And then we presented um, on a panel. So it was myself and two uh, subjects from the film and the director of the film, David, um, that presented at Sundance. Um, and that's what took me there. That's so hella dope. Hopefully... I know, I know. It was it was a really cool experience, and I'm hoping that Justin and I will present, uh, will premiere Hamtramck at Sundance next year. Nice. So, so is it not that, finished that, yet? That's the goal. It's not finished. It's yet. not finished. No, yet. We're okay. Po- yeah, we're in post production right now. We're working with an amazing executive producer, Doug Blush, um, who's worked on a ton of great films: Twenty Feet from Stardom, Icarus, um, nice. and uh, he's our executive producer. And then we have an editor, Luther. Um, that we're working with, who's also an amazing um, editor. Uh, and then we've had this really great group of um, uh, volunteers that helped us bring this uh, film together to this point. Um, and so at this point, we're in post-production, editing, fundraising, um, trying to figure out a plan for the rest of the year for this film. Like, how are we going to get it out there? Um, we have received some support uh, um, uh, through... Um, through two grants that we received from the Islamic Scholarship Fund um, and the Center for Asian American Media, um, which both gave us uh, generous grants to uh, continue working on this film because they believed in the story. Um, And uh, we also have a crowdfunding campaign that we launched using the platform LaunchGood. Um, And so if anyone is interested in seeing footage from the film, uh, there's a clip uh, on the LaunchGood page, um, if you just like searched LaunchGood Hamtramck documentary, you'd be able to find it. But there's a clip on there um, and a little bit more background on the film. And, you know, if you're feeling the love, then, you know, <laughs> throw some support our way as well. So 100 percent. 100 percent people should. Now, Razi, I wanted to ask you uh, this question uh, that I mean, won't kind of sum things up. It's a it's a big question, but I think that, like you know. Sundance this year, there were quite a few uh, projects uh, from Muslim American filmmakers, uh, and it kind of very much so felt like a response to the fact of, uh, and maybe this is me reading into things a little bit too much, but (laughs) last year, Lena Dunham uh, and J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg announced that they were making a, uh, a movie about Syrian refugees, and there was a big outcry from, like, you know, uh, 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 film twitter of being like why couldn't you get any muslim american filmmakers specifically even muslim american filmmakers to uh, uh, uh female muslim american filmmakers to like you know work on this project with you and all this stuff and jj abram's response which was so callous was who would we get like who even knows who these people are and it felt like this year oh was God. like a coming out party of like you know a bunch of yeah. muslim american filmmakers and i wanted to know did you get to check out any of those projects i know there's i'm, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong but Hala yeah. was um, there. That's one that yeah. I've seen. 
I, getting I, a lot I of raves ha- from, I watched ha- from uh, yeah. Minhal Baig. Is that how you... Um, I could be butchering yeah, Min, her name Yeah, Minhal Baig, yeah. Uh, but it was like a yeah. coming-of-age story about a Muslim girl in America. And there were quite a few other projects. Um, did you get to check out any of those? And also, yeah. uh, what advice do you give to like you know any Muslim Americans who could be listening to this who feel so underrepresented and stuff like that? Like, What promises and assurances do you have for them of like, these projects are coming and anything like that. Yeah. I mean, to, to JJ Abrams, I would, I would just tell him, um, Google it. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, there's people out there, man. Uh, there's writers, there's directors, there's consultants, um, you know, that, man, that's, that's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Or even further than <laughs> but, that, look for him too. Like yeah. actively look say, Hey, I'm looking look for, for this yeah. and people yeah, will come out the woodwork. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And they're not even in the woodworks. Right. There are people that are on staff at, you know, some of the most popular television shows, um, films, uh, you know, actors, Mahershala Ali, you know, ask, ask the guy, you know, like ask. And there's, there's so many of us like that are out there and there are organizations, there's nonprofits that do consulting on this. I have no problem if JJ Abrams wants to make a film about Syrian refugees um, but what is the perspective yeah. and who's involved in the project? Yeah. And, you know, so the thing that I would say is I would invite anyone that's interested in making a film, not just about my community, but about a community with which you have no familiarity or very little familiarity is to ask, find someone in that community and work very closely with them and ask with the intention to learn and to understand. Mm-hmm. And you'll have a much richer and more nuanced uh, project by the end of it. Yeah. And uh, so that's what I would say to that. In terms of Sundance, this was a very interesting experience in this particular regard. So, um, you know, I saw I saw a couple films while I was there, and I definitely felt like there was a ton of representation for not only Muslims, but, you know, people from, you know, different backgrounds, Latino, Asian, um, African-American. And that was really celebrated at Sundance. And if you look up the statistics, there was something like 53% of the films that were um, that were screened at that premiered at Sundance were from female uh, directors, and that was the Fuck same yeah. thing that people would have said maybe like you know ten years ago they would have said oh where are those female directors yeah. well you know what you weren't looking hard enough yeah you know because they are there yeah um, and you're just not looking hard enough and I think you know kudos to Sundance for highlighting it you know there was an entire panel of Muslim writers um, and uh, filmmakers uh, on one of the days that I had gone to. Uh, And that was something that like, you know, when I walked into that room, it was so diverse. The majority of the audience was not Muslim, but you're walking into a room and you're seeing yourself being represented. Yeah. You know, and that was profound. And and Hala, a beautiful film by Minhal Beg, um, who I did get to meet, actually. And this is one of the films that I really wanted to see. And, uh, and, and I got to see it actually at the last minute, I got hooked up with a ticket. So, um, uh, thank you to my friend Mahin for, uh, for hooking that up. Um, but, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I got to see the film and, and, you know, it was, uh, an amazing cast. Uh, it was, uh, well-received and she got a big deal with Apple at the the festival. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's something for us to be like really proud of to see this film, um, be successfully, you know, successfully premiere at Sundance and then get picked up. And I, I just, I have a feeling that we're going to see a lot of big things from her in the future. Oh, yeah. um, and then I saw another film. So this is where it kind of starts getting interesting. So I saw another film, which is about um, sexual assault in high school. 
And the film is called Share. And it was about this young girl um, that uh, experiences a sexual assault at a party. And then the footage uh, is captured um, on cell phones and it's shared uh, through social media and yes. other avenues. Um, but the thing that I thought was really cool about this film, and, and, and it's a good story too, but the thing that I thought was really cool is that it's a biracial family. So it's an Indian mother and a, and a white father and the daughter and like the sibling, you know, so it's, it's and, and you have a cast that's, you had, you know, um, African-American girls, um, you had, you know, um, a nice diverse cast. But the thing is, the, their race or the fact that they were a mixed race family was not like a part of the story. That's the future. That's the so future. It's actually, yes. it's actually normalizing the fact that like, look, we have diversity in America. Yes. And any story about Muslims, like they don't necessarily have to be about the thing that <laughs> that is presented outwardly about us. Yes. You yeah. know what I mean? Yes. Um, they can and just so in that exist. story, like... You don't you don't hear about the fact that the mom's Indian, the dad's white. Yeah. Like it's just a story that that so many young women can identify with, can relate with, and it's through this girl who's an Indian girl and has an Indian mother and, and a white father. But it's never part of the story. Yeah, it's just a story, and the characters, the actors that are be, that are representing those characters, those actors are from different backgrounds that we have not seen in film. You know, normally if you see an Indian person in a film, it's going to be overacted. It's going to be a story about immigration or he's going to be playing, he or she is going to be playing a doctor or an engineer uh, or something like that, you know, or they're going to choose a brown person to play a terrorist, you know. Um, right. And so a film like this, it's just like what's cool about it is how subtle that whole thing is, you know, is that they don't make a big deal about her, them being a biracial family. It's just a family. You know, yeah. and it's just how families are going to look in our future, you know. Amen. And so I, I thought that that was really cool. Um, yeah. And then, you know, like I mentioned, there were a couple panels on uh, there was a whole panel on Muslim represent, representation in the media. This really talented uh, scriptwriter uh, Samir, who uh, who just created a show called East of La Brea about two yeah. uh, young Muslim women. Yeah, he's based in L.A. I got to meet him, too. Um, they showed a trailer from the show and yeah. it looked hilarious. I just heard about that it on film so Twitter. Funny. I'm very, yeah. very excited. Exactly. For it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, Aisha Johnson, the comedian, she was on the panel. Um, you know, uh, Layla Fadel, the uh, NPR correspondent um, who I worked with on a project for National Geographic, uh, you know, about a year and a half ago, was the moderator for that panel. So you have a whole panel that's all people from Muslim backgrounds and all different backgrounds. You had two African American women. One Egyptian American woman, Layla, uh, South Asian, you know, guy, and Samir, and then Maria Banji, um, you know, who's from South Asian background as well. So, was JJ Abrams you know, there? Like, JJ Abrams was not at that. There you panel. go. There you go. Wow. Not that I, wow. Not that I know of. Yeah, <laughs> I should have. I should have sent him an invite. You know. So. Um, uh, but anyways, yeah, I felt like you know, I felt like it was it was I felt represented and yeah, I felt yeah. visible. Good. You know, and that's not something I can say about a lot of like conferences or festivals that I've gone yeah. to before. One hundred percent. Yeah, I know we got to get kudos to Sundance. Yeah, yeah, I know we got to get rid of you. I know we got to let you go soon. So I wanna, I wanna end with this. Uh, I feel like this would be a good one for you. We do a segment called "Would You Rather." So let's do it right now, guys. It's time for "Would You Rather." All right, I got it for you. All right, Rosie, I'm going to let okay. you answer this first. All right, now, this is the first time we're doing this specific question. So before you give an answer, 
we can talk it out if there's questions you have and stuff like that. And we can set the parameters of this for future uh, purposes. All right. So here it is. Mm-hmm. Would you rather lose all of your memories from birth to now or lose your ability to make new long-term memories? I feel like your would you rathers have been getting more and more depressed lately, Jaquise. Yes, they are. And I want to know what's going on with you. Well, guys, it's called depression. <laughs> <laughs> These would you rather's have yeah, gone man. from they've they're, gone from sexual to uh, very, very dark. introspective and dark. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. It's gonna oh, come man. back around. So, so you know, this is this is a very interesting question. It is it is a little morbid, I must say. <laughs> you know, right now I would I, right now what I would love the most is to forget about how cold it is outside. <laughs> yeah. that's, all, that, that's all about that's all about the now. That's all about the now. But but uh, I'm gonna indulge you. I'm gonna answer your question. Um, so you know, I I'm and, and this kind of like I think that what this alludes to is like one of the things that this could be used as an index for mm-hmm. is are you a pessimistic person or are you an optimistic person? That is very and true. And so I think I think what I would do is is I would rather lose the ability to 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 um, remember my memories uh, as opposed to forming new memories. Okay. Because I see a lot of hope in, in my future, and I see a lot of hope in, for, for the future of my community. Um, and I, I envision um, a lot of big things uh, in my future, you know, projects, things that I would like to work on. And so I have a lot to look forward to. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I, I might be okay with letting go of the past a little bit, which kind of brings me down sometimes. So, yeah. um, so I, may, I may actually take that option. It's yeah. Okay. What about you guys? Yeah. I don't know. What, what do you say, Edgar? I don't know, man. This is a really tough one because, you know, I had a rough childhood. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it's not like I have a great present either. So, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> ah, man. I Can don't I put know. the caveat on this that, yeah. that, all right, there's obviously important people in our lives, all of right? Of course. So, with the, let's, let's have this caveat that those important people, like it's not like you're gonna forget who your mom is. You're gonna or, have to forget short term memory. You're gonna though. right. You're yeah. not gonna forget Anna. I you're get not, it. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like the movie. I'd become like the movie uh, uh, Memento. Yes, yes. Where I have to constantly remind myself what I'm doing and stuff like that. Yes. I don't know. I'm, here's what I'm gonna say. It seems like such a hassle. The the Memento way. You know what I mean? Like to constantly <laughs> like have. Like, you know, like to get to the podcast and be like, why am I in this building? Yeah. What did I do? Like, you know, that just seems like such a hassle. It'll be like getting Alzheimer's early is essentially what you're describing. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Uh, so I think I'm going to go with Rosie on this one and uh, uh, I'm going to forget the past. You're going to forget the past and be able to make new long-term memories. Yeah. I'm going to agree with both of you guys, uh, which probably is the first time this has ever happened where I were not split. Yeah. Uh, as much as like there are things in my past that are great memories, right? Uh, I think to say that those great memories will end in the past is, like you said, a little pessimistic and a little depressing uh, as opposed to, you know what? There is a lot of shit to look forward to. So, you know, we're all relatively young. We're in our 30s or, as Edgar, in his mid-late 20s. So we we got hopefully a long life ahead of us where we got got a lot of good shit to look forward to. So... I want to make some uh want to make some new memories and some of those old memories from the past if they happen to me again in the new, you know, and going forward, then I can relive some of those great feelings 
again that you'll never get again because you've already lived through it. Mm, that's true. So yeah, that's what I'm going with. That's what I'm going with. We're all we're all on the same page, man. <laughs> all on the same page. So, uh, Rosie, one more time, where can people uh, uh, donate to the project? What was that link? And then where can people find you uh, on social so, media overall? Yeah, um, so they can donate to the link um, at the website uh, launchgood.com uh, backslash Hamtramck doc. Mm-hmm. So launchgood, launchgood.com uh, backslash Hamtramck doc. Um, they can see a clip from the film um, and then they can contribute to the project. And they can learn more about the project there. Um, and then, what was your second question? Oh, oh where people can, can find us. Where people yeah. can find you on social. So, if you're trying to be found, I understand if you're not trying to be found. Oh no, no, people can definitely. You know, I, I love connecting with people um, over social media. So, um, so uh, I'm on social media. It's Razi Joffrey on Twitter. It's Joffrey underscore Razi on Instagram. It's R R A Joffrey. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm I'm easy to find, you know. Um, You're going to regret saying that. Easy to find. I'm in these streets. You're going to regret saying that because they will find you. uh, And then for the film, uh, you know, it's uh, the two projects I'm working on are loyalty. Um, You know, if you just Googled like loyalty stories, um, chaplains, Muslim, military, you'll find it. And then uh, for the Hamtramck documentary, it's HamtramckDocumentary.com is the website. And then we're also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. So, and all those links are on the website as well. So if you go to HamtramckDocumentary.com, you'll find uh, our social media um, links um, right on there. So, and you'll learn about myself and Justin a little bit more. So, Love it. I love, love it, it. Love it. Love it. Big fan of Justin Feltman. We went to yes. college together. Big oh, fan. Dope. <laughs> That's yeah. dope. Uh, yeah. Well, dude, Rosie, thank you so much for jumping on with us and talking to us about it. I feel like... Sure. Uh, I learned a lot, and we had a pretty good conversation, man. We we learned a lot of good shit about what you're doing, about Hamtramck, which, like I said, I never heard about. Uh, mm. And to my knowledge, I don't know if we've ever had a conversation on this podcast about the Muslim-American community. You would know uh, that we've had two conversations about it previous to this one because they were both N.P. Edgar episodes, well, which you refused to listen to, Jaquise. Well, I said we, not you. <laughs> All right? I'm trying to be inclusive here. You thinking about yourself. <laughs> All right. uh, Roger, well, you- I, had, I had a great time with you guys, and uh, if you guys ever want to have me back on, I would love to join you guys. Hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Yo, about- if you ever in LA, really man. If you're ever in LA, Sounds roll good. through, Sounds man. Good. We'll get you actually in this room with us. That's right. You can have some of okay, the snacks that we good. have here in the room. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I, hey, I love snacks, man. Oh uh, yeah. Right. If we can keep I you on the snacks. line for if we can keep you on the line for like 30 seconds for us to do these uh do these important businesses so we can say, you know, sure. bye to you and all that good shit in private because we gotta talk Sounds that good. shit in Sounds private. Good. Uh for everybody else who are not gonna hear our private conversations. Keep talking to us on Culture Kings Pod on everything, y'all. At Jaquise Neal on all social media. At Awful Graham on the Instagram. At Edgar Montblazier on the Twitter. We have those new t-shirt designs, tpublic.com slash Culture Kings. Go ahead and grab them. They look great. I sleep in my Culture Kings hoodie every night. It is so soft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we probably got another one-star review recently. So, And it probably says something to the effect of we're racist. Um, so go leave us some five star reviews and say, ha, they are racist, but I love it. Uh, something to that effect. (laughs) Okay. That's how we change America guys. 
Uh, 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 we ha- uh, Earwolf is doing their whole uh, uh, Earwolf Presents mm-hmm, lineup. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I had one drop last week. The Locust. Uh, uh, Carl Tart had one. Uh, uh, the, the what is it called? The, uh, Carl Carl Alarm. Arm, yeah, Carl, Carl Alarm. Alarm. Yeah. And then Jaquise has one coming out next week. So make sure you go ahead and Anna and Heather have one coming out. So go ahead and check those out, and you know, just have some fun with those. Have some fun with them. Support them. Uh, we all like to do as much shit as we possibly can. So That's help right. us do that. That's right. Guys, we like you. We love you. Roz, one more time. Rozzy, I should say. Thank you for coming on, my man. Uh, we appreciate you. Of course, you. you're welcome, man. I had such a great time talking to you guys. Uh, and to everybody else, bye-bye.